Yevamos Perk Tesvav Mishnah Dalid 15.4. The Mishnah continues on with the rules regarding um, extraordinary acceptance of a single witness um, to believe that a woman's husband died to allow her to remarry. And we said that's because we don't want her to be trapped as an aguna. And we rely on the fact that people wouldn't lie if the truth will come out later on. And we also ensure the woman is confident it's true because we put severe penalties on her in the event that uh, turns out her husband actually was alive after all. So the first three Mishnahs said we believe her. This Mishnah will say that actually we believe basically anybody, um, even people who are not normally admissible in court as witnesses, um, so women, slaves, etc., um, relatives, all those people, for the sake of allowing this woman to remarry, Chazal were extraordinarily lenient and said, Hakol ne'emanin l'ha'ida, that everybody, any witness, is believed um, to testify on her behalf that her husband died, allowing her to remarry, with the exception of five women. And that's the f- first part of our mission here. Chutz, with the exception of the following five women. In all of their cases, the assumption is that these women harbor ill will towards the uh, would-be widow, and therefore they are liable to lie and have her remarry so that she'll ultimately be... Um, forced to separate and be divorced from her real husband. Um, she certainly will not be able to continue to live with her, her future husband, that one would be. And um, she'll, of course, be just humiliated in the process of being, you know, now this terrible woman who did this quote-unquote terrible thing to her husband, um, all because they tricked her. So these five women are assumed to be um, harboring ill will, and therefore they can't potentially likely to be harboring ill will, and therefore they can't serve as the witnesses. So who are these five women? The first is Chutzmet Chamosa, her mother-in-law. The assumption is that the mother-in-law will harbor a will towards her daughter-in-law. It's a sad this mission, actually. Every fastest mission is tragic and sad. Um, but uh, the point is that since we are concerned that the mother-in-law will be essentially jealous of the daughter-in-law, she'll say as, as uh, because I'll put it, Haisha Zarazu, this foreign woman, meaning the daughter-in-law, she will ultimately be the one who will get to enjoy the fruits of my labor, meaning when her son, the mother-in-law's son, inherits the estate from, you know, the the mother-in-law and her husband's home. So then the son inherits all the work that she put into the house and household now becomes his, and the one who gets to enjoy the fruits is now the daughter-in-law, the wife of the heir. And therefore the mother-in-law will be bitter and resent have resentment towards the daughter-in-law, and therefore is liable to try to mess her up by giving this false testimony to get her out of the picture. Um, that's, of course, a very sad story, but that's that's um, that's the shot on the Mishnah here. Now, um, worth noting is that although the Mishnah is just five, there's a basic principle um, based on the Pasuk and Mishle, Perk Chavzayin, Pasuk Yutes, 27.19, that says, Kamaim hapanim lepanim, just as water, when you look into it, it reflects your face, so you look face to face with your own reflection in the water. So, so too, Cain lev ha'adam la'adam. So too, a person's heart to his fellow person, meaning that a person reciprocates the attitude that he feels he is receiving from another person. So, since in the context here, since the daughter-in-law would have no reason to hold anything against her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law is not going to be inheriting from her, etc. Um, so she has no reason to be resentful towards her or jealous towards her. But since the mother-in-law is liable to be ill-disposed, be negative towards the daughter-in-law, the daughter-in-law picks up on that. She realizes her mother-in-law doesn't like her, and therefore she reciprocates by not liking her mother-in-law. 
which will mean lahalacha that although the mission lists just five relationships, since some of the relationships, like for example, mother-in-law has a reciprocal side, meaning daughter-in-law, so the daughter-in-law is equally not believed to testify regarding the death of her mother-in-law's husband, meaning her father-in-law. So that being the case, although the mission doesn't say it, if the daughter-in-law testifies regarding her mother-in-law's her father-in-law's death, so then um, she also is not believed. So that was the first of the five. The second of the five is Bas Chamosa. That means the daughter of her father-in-law. So that means her husband's sister. We would call that a sister-in-law, but remember in English, sister-in-law can mean two separate things. With respect to a woman, a woman can have two different relationships that are utterly different, yet both have the English expression sister-in-law. This is one of those two, which is Bas Chamosa, that it's her husband's sister, literally the daughter of her father-in-law. The assumption is that there's a certain um, tension between um, uh, the woman and her, her sister-in-law, meaning her husband's sister, because ultimately um, when the estate passes on, she being married to her to the son will be the beneficiary of the estate as an heir, whereas the other woman who's a, a daughter but not an heir, since the sons and not the daughters are the ones who are inheriting, that being the case, the sister who doesn't inherit from her parents will be resentful towards the sister-in-law who's effectively inheriting by being married to the son who is the heir. And that being the case, she'll be resentful, she'll be liable to give this false testimony to mess her sister-in-law up, and that being the case, her testimony is not believed that's only one who, that, about her brother having died. The third is Vitsarasa, the co-wife. So Tsara, we've seen them from the first mission of the Masechta, but I'll remind you again, here we have um, Reuven took two wives, Rachel and Leah, so the point is that Rachel went away on vacation with the husband, leaving Leah behind. Rachel comes back, and she says, my husband died when we were abroad. Let's just say I'm making up a story, of course. So the point is, that would be testimony testimony in theory that would allow Leah, the tsara, the co-wife, to now remarry because she's a widow. But the point of her mission is, since the fundamental relationship between two co-wives, tsaros, is indeed tsaros, as a tsara is like a, you know, one who's having a struggle with another. Um, so the point is, of course, that since there's a built-in uh, resentment that arises from the fact they're competing for the time and affection and attention of their husband, so therefore the tsara can't be believed, um, which actually sets up a very strange legal consequence, which is if Leah comes, Rachel comes back and says that her husband died, so that means Rachel would be allowed to remarry based on the first Mishnah I saw in our parak here, that a woman can be believed to testify regarding her own husband's death. So Rachel could remarry, but Leah, the co-wife, can't remarry, because she can't rely on that testimony um, to allow her to remarry somebody else. Um, the idea being that maybe you know Rachel is scheming um, to mess up to mess up Leah. She has some trick up her sleeve, which would actually ultimately get Leah out the picture, of course, because if Leah remarries, and then the husband turns up again, Leah is forced to get divorced, and then Rachel would have her husband all to herself. So, therefore, the tsara is not believed um, to testify regarding the death of her co-wife, to allow the co-wife to remarry. Next, the fourth is Vyavimta. Yavimta, okay, in English, once again, I would call it, this. the word for this in English is the um, sister-in-law, but this is a different relationship. Here you have, I'll describe it first, and I kind of draw you the picture, and then you'll see. So Yavimta means that if, let's say, two brothers, Reuven and Shimon, married two women, 
unrelated women, okay, named uh, named uh, Avigail and and uh, Sarah, okay. So now Reuben marries Avigail and Shimon marries Sarah. Now um, the relation between Avigail and Sarah is called the Yevimta. They are sisters-in-law, right? Because they're married to two brothers. That's totally different than the sister of her husband, uh, which in English both would mean, also mean sister-in-law. But here, um, Yevimta, the same word in English, sister-in-law, is referring to where, again, this woman, Avigail, her husband, Reuven, has a brother, Shimon, who has a wife, Sarah, and they're called, she's called the Yivimta because if Reuven would die childless, then Avigail now would fall to Yibum to Shimon, and she would become a Tsara, a co-wife with Sarah. Avigail and Sarah would become Tsarot with a Tsai, they become rivals. So, since there's a presumption that the sister-in-law, the Yivimta, in our story here, Sarah, will be uh, resentful and mistrusting and ill-disposed towards Avigail because she could end up being her co-wife. She'll have ill will want to mess her up. Therefore, her testimony is not believed to say that her husband died. Now, Tosos asks, wait a second, the whole thing doesn't seem to make any sense. I mean, if Sarah, I'm changing to Sarah, so not confusing here. If Sarah testified that Reuven dies, what would that mean? That would mean that Reuven, and Reuven had no children, that mean that Reuven's wife, of Egal, now falls to Yibum to Sarah's husband, Shimon. Which means Shimon will end up having two wives and Avigail will become Sarah's co-wife, Sarah's Sarah. Uh, if that's the case, that's exactly what Sarah was afraid of all along. So what in the world? Why in the world would she lie to bring upon herself the very thing she is so desperate to avoid? Tosos's question. Tosos's answer. Yeah, that's true, but it's just a, a short-term short-term problem. In other words, for a short amount of time, good old Sarah will have to share her husband, Shimon, with now, with with Abigail. But not too long from now, Reuven will come back on the scene. The truth will come out. Reuven's forced to now divorce Abigail, and Abigail's out, you know, kicked to the curb. And that being the case, Sarah has succeeded in getting rid of her as her potential Tsara. So the Tostos' answer is that Sarah, the Yevimta, the co-wife, Excuse me. The um, the sister in law, who then becomes the co wife, is prepared to put up with a short term unhappy situation for the sake of a long term gain of getting rid of her potential rival, the sister in law. That's why she can't be believed. And the fifth of the finest is fifth of the five, I should say, who aren't believed is the Bas Baila. This I'll call the stepdaughter in English. The translation literally is the daughter of her husband. Right. So you have this Ruv, this Reuven. He's now married to this woman, Leah, but he previously was married to this woman, Rachel. And Rachel and Reuven had a daughter. We'll call her Trouble. So um, so now Trouble is ill-disposed towards her stepmother, or at least her her father's other wife, um, Leah, and therefore she'll want to mess her up, get out of the picture. And, that, and you know, she's, you know, that she's the one who's inheriting, perhaps her mother, the first wife, Trouble's mother, you know, did the work, and now the second wife's enjoying the fruits of the, la- the labor. So therefore, whatever it is, um, the stepdaughter is ill-disposed towards her stepmother, and therefore is liable to lie to get her messed up and kicked out of the picture, and therefore she cannot be believed. Now, we'll learn later on 
um, that in the beginning of Ksubus we'll learn later on that for a get to be believed, if it's being delivered by a shaliach, by a by an agent, the shaliach has to testify that the get was written and signed in their presence. Therefore, the that witness, the shaliach, the 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 agent is bringing the get affirms the legitimacy of the get. The details we will learn about in Ksubus in the, in the very beginning there. Now, we'll also learn that even these five women who we just listed in the Mishnah, who are presumed to have enmity towards, you know, the this uh, this wife and would want to mess her up, they are, yes, believed to be the shlichim, the agents who are delivering this get, and when they say the get is a kosher get, they are believed. Now, the Mishnah here wants to say, wait a second, the net effect of delivering a get and getting, which permits a woman to remarry, and delivering testimony that permits a woman to remarry, are really the same thing. So the Mishnah wants to know why it would be that these five women are yes believed regarding um, the like the confirmation of a get, whereas they're not believed regarding the confirmation of a death. Doesn't it make doesn't make sense? They should be, have equal motivations, therefore they should be equally believable in both scenarios. Thus the Mishnah wants to know, Ma bain get the Misa, what is the difference between their believability regarding delivery of a get, la Misa, to their non-believability regarding the testimony regarding the death of the husband? So the, the Mishnah answers, Shehaksav mochiach, because the handwriting itself proves it. In other words, the primary basis by which we accept a uh, get which has been delivered from abroad is that um, although the husband who's doing the divorcing is not present, we recognize his handwriting. And although things could go wrong with the get, this witness will confirm, as the shaliach is delivering it, that the get is indeed a kosher get. Um, so, But the primary reason we're believing the get is because the handwriting itself. So there's some sort of external primary reason to believe it's true, and just the the testimony of the shaliach is secondary. Whereas in the case of testimony regarding the death of the husband, the only person, the only fact we have is just, you know, the hearsay testimony, you know, of this of this, of this this woman. And, you know, her testimony alone is everything we're relying upon. That's not enough. So we're drawing that contrasting, the distinction between having supporting evidence of the primary evidence, really, of the handwriting versus just the nothing to go on other than her, her word. Now, the mission goes on. It really could be a separate mission. That's the truth. Okay, there's a new, new, the new point to the mission is: what do we do if we have contradictory testimony? So we have three cases. The first is the mission says, "Edomer Mace, a, a witness comes, who's an acceptable witness, and says, you know, so and so's husband died, and therefore she's permitted to remarry. And indeed, the Bezdin Paskins, yes, she can remarry." Vinicius, in the case of our Mishnah, it says she actually does remarry, um, but in truth, as we'll see later on, that's not essential. Even if she didn't remarry, she had a psak that she could remarry, and that ruling is enough um, and sufficient. If, after the based in rule, she's permitted to remarry, whether or not she actually does remarry, and then uva acher, another witness comes, like, like an, let's say a second woman comes, or whatever. Va'amar and she, the second witness says, lomes, nope, 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 the guy did not die after all. So now we have contradictory testimony. It doesn't matter. Harezu lo teitze, this woman who's now remarried to Mr. B need not get divorced. Because once the based and accepted the testimony of the first witness, 
that's sufficient. They've, and since they're accepting it, that acceptance kind of has, they confer on that testimony the kind of the same weight as if there were two witnesses testifying because it's, it's binding, the court makes a binding decision based on that halakhic, you know, fact they established from that one witness. And that being the case, another one witness can't undo that. So therefore, we don't listen to the second witness and the woman can stay married or in fact, if she never got married yet, she could still now go and get married. Well, not mention the mission, that's, that's the din. The second case, what happens if eight Omer Mace, first one witness comes, let's say it's a, and, and says the husband died, um, and then let's even, then, then, let's say she even gets remarried, based on that testimony. Ushnaim Omrim, then two more come and say, uh-uh, he didn't die. So now, um, they say low Mace, he didn't die. Afalpishanisis, even if she did get remarried based on the first accepted witness, Tate's age now has to get divorced. And the reason why is because, um, in the simple reading, it's obvious that two witnesses are, are going to have the power to overrule one witness, and therefore two witnesses are binding. So, of course, we believe the two witnesses um, and reject the, all, their previous testimony of the one witness, and therefore we say the woman now has to get divorced because her husband is presumed to be not dead after all. Now, that's so obvious that two witnesses should be able to overturn the testimony of one witness. So the question is, like, why in the world is mission even saying it? And the answer is that this would be true, this mission would be true, even if we had um, contradictory testimony that's going on, um, not one after that, but together. So three witnesses come in, one say he's dead, two say he's not dead. So the point of our mission here is that um, although we haven't got anything really, let's say um, all the witnesses are not kosher witnesses, there's three women, let's say. So now the normal rules of testimony aren't going to kick in here because we haven't got two kosher witnesses. So the principle at work in our Mishnah is that we go after what's called the rov deos, the majority of opinions, for lack of a better term. Like in other words, there's a few a few minds have weighed in on what happened. So we go after the majority because we have no other choice. That'd be true, of course, if you had three against two or nine against eight. It doesn't make a difference. Since normally we say that two witnesses is at the same weight as 100 witnesses, but that's true when you have kosher witnesses. We're talking here about, let's say, not kosher witnesses. They don't, so we're not working through the rubric of normal testimony, which we'll discuss, you know, Masechus, Remachus, and Hedron, and so on. Um, we're talking here about this extra legal or this unusual scenario of believing the not kosher witnesses. So the rule is, um, when you have not kosher witnesses working together, we just simply go after the court will go after whatever the majority, you know, of, of opinions is of what happened. That's their best. That's our best case scenario. So in the case of our mission here, we go lechumra and we force this woman to get divorced if she remarried based on the, te- based on the testimony of a single woman because we have two more witnesses, wom- women, let's say, um, that are contradicting what was said before, and they'll believe the majority. The third case of our mission here is that we don't always use this principle of rov deos, the majority of opinions, to go strict, the kumra. We'll also use it, the kula, to be lenient. The mission says, shnaim omrim meis, if two witnesses, let's say again women, for example, come and they say, the fellow did die, veid echad, and then one witness, omer lo meis, that woman, that one witness says he didn't die, so you have two against one, um, but two saying yes, he did die, and one said he didn't die, so then, even though she, the woman hasn't gotten married yet, and there's sort of a dispute in the courts whether or not her husband is dead, we allow her to marry, meaning we're going to be lenient and go after Rovdeo, since two out of three say that he did die, and we don't want her to be in Aguna, and therefore we'll be lenient and rely on that majority to allow her to get married, relying on this principle of Rovdeo's Lakula to be lenient as well.